Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in fuels and vehicles. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is Paul Arteropoulos, who is the outgoing Senior Policy Director for EPA's Office of Transportation and Air Quality. Paul, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Tammy. Thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to our conversation today. Me too. Me too. So, first of all, for the global listeners who may not know you, I mean, I can't imagine there's a person in the industry in the U.S. and maybe even abroad who doesn't know you, but for the folks who may not know you, can you talk a little bit about your background and um, and your former role at the EPA? Sure. Happy to do that. Uh, I was very fortunate to work for the Environmental Protection Agency, and cumulative time was uh, close to 30 years, actually. I originally started back in the early 80s in the Office of Solid Waste and Emergency Response, uh, and while I enjoyed that, my passion has always been automobiles, and when I got the opportunity to move, which was at that time the Office of Mobile Sources, I jumped at it, and I was able to engage in the regulatory development program development, uh, and actually enforcement of EPA's mobile source programs back then. Uh, So I did that for about 13 years, and I was involved in both the vehicle side as well as the fuel side. And as you know, in 1990, a lot of things changed with the implementation of the the Clean Air Act amendments and all the new mobile source programs, and particularly fuels. And that's really where I got more heavily involved in fuels. I then left the agency, worked in the private sector for a couple groups. Uh, One was Information Resources, which ultimately later became Hart Downstream Energy Services. And I was also very fortunate to continue that work from the private side and then work in the international efforts in both fuels and vehicle control programs, which was was quite interesting. Additionally, I had a a two-year stint with the American Petroleum Institute, which was fascinating to me because I actually was working then directly with the Petroleum Institute, which uh, you might seem to see as a little bit in conflict, but actually all of these particular industries and the the government sides actually have to work in concert with not only understanding these things, but but putting together programs that address the concerns of the industry and then ultimately still achieve those goals. And then um, after about 10 years outside the agency, I once again had the opportunity to go back and I was hired back into the Office of Transportation and Air Quality and work in the director's office then. Um, my position was senior policy advisor. It remained that for the past 12 years until I recently retired. And again, I was very fortunate to be able to work and continue work on a lot of these programs. However, there was a lot of evolution beyond when I left the agency and, and certainly the Energy Policy Act, which came into effect in 2005 and the amendments under ESA in 2007, changed a lot of things, and I really began to focus more on the renewable fuel side of the business. And that's kind of where I left it at that point. I retired about a month ago, and I had a wonderful career there, and I'm actually looking forward to, to hopefully continuing a little bit more work in this side. Yeah, and I'm going to ask you um, a little bit about that as we get more um, into the uh, into the podcast. But um, full disclosure for the listeners, one of the very first jobs that I had 20 plus plus years ago, and I was like, oh my God, (laughs) that's a long time, was actually working with and for you, especially on that international side. And that's really where I got, you know, a lot of my start uh, really working in fuels was really working with you. And that was, that was really, we had a lot of fun back then. That's for sure. Yeah, we did. Yeah. And we, we certainly, uh, we had a great time doing that. There definitely was a lot of new things on the forefront in the vehicle and fuel side and working with you uh, and also having you there as kind of a rising star within the company at that time. <laughs> Obviously, you've, you've stuck with it and you've done very well. <laughs> you've done a lot of good work too, Tammy. Oh, thanks, Paul. I appreciate that. I don't know about star, but maybe there's a little <laughs> twinkle, a little tiny twinkle in there. So I want to ask you, because you had broad experience. I mean, I didn't know when I started my career, you know, I didn't even know what a vapor recovery was. <laughs> and, and you, you know, you work, you've worked, you know, in so many programs. I think you have been involved in um, most, if not all, of 
the sort of the modern fuel programs, you know, going back into, you know, the, you know, you know, the 80s all the way up until today. So and, and I think probably I mean, there's a few there's a few folks within EPA who sort of have that sort of broad, um, deep um, institutional um, knowledge. You know, there's there's a few folks, but you're definitely one of those few. So the question I want to ask you is, of all the fuel programs you've been involved with over the years, which ones do you think were the best designed policies that delivered the biggest improvements in air quality, public health, and then, you know, now, um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions? So that's the first question. And the follow-up is, how do you see fuels programs evolving over the next 10 years? And the reason I'm asking the question is, it seems like there's a lot of grappling with trying to find, you know, the the best policies, <laughs> you know, and there have been some winners, <laughs> in my view, and there have been some real stinkers, too. So, you know, you've been, at, you've been at the forefront of that. So what's your view? Well, that's a great question, and it's also not an easy one to answer as you know, because of my background and kind of the the decades-long involvement I've had in this area, which goes all the way back to actually still engaging in lead phase-down, which was one of the first programs, if not the first control, quality control program. Um, So it it is a little bit difficult, but I, after all of the years of doing this, um, I think there's a couple things. One, I think simple ultimately works best. However, that's not necessarily, simple is not easy to implement, design and implement, because there are so many different stakeholders that are involved and you really do have to look at how to obtain the best benefits for the least costs. And the cost-benefit approach that, you know, the agency has had over the years has worked very well. However, it has also resulted in some very complex programs. But I think SIMPLE does work best. I think the volatility control programs early on were very, very beneficial uh, to the United States in terms of reducing volatile organic compounds and ultimately uh, precursors for ozone. I think it was was a huge step forward. That was probably the first fuel quality control program that had significant impacts other than obviously lead, which was taking something that you were or not putting something in at the time. Uh, I think the RFG program, which was fascinating and, and very complex, great in design, uh, took a a Herculean effort, I think, not just on the fact of the agency, but also on the industry to get involved and and to ultimately come Mm -hmm. to some principles. So I I think that was a very beneficial program. However, when you put all these things together over the course of time, uh, the reality is you've parsed together a lot of different regulatory programs, and ultimately they've all been beneficial. And now we are at a point where, you know, it, it may be best to actually look at where we are and to rethink things and come up with a more simple solution, not only to, I guess, you know, make effect of the things that have passed and that are already in place and the industry has already made its adjustments to, but also to then simplify the regulatory requirements to reduce cost burden. And I know the agency is undergoing some of that right now. But I guess the, the, the two programs, probably the most beneficial um, were low sulfur programs and probably the RFG program. Yeah, I, I would have, I would have, if I had to bet, I or guess, I would have said um, sulfur reduction. I mean, it's almost like you know, in terms of the connection to air quality and and public health. I mean, it's sort of the a slam dunk. I mean, you know, it's it's almost like uh, lead phase down. Um, what about like um, benzene reduction? Well, certainly that particular effort, the mobile source air toxics programs that EPA implemented, I think were very beneficial as well. And that's more to me from a a direct exposure. And and certainly there are emissions that are reduced from the tailpipe as well. But again, I think you put all of these things together and the goal is to try and design programs that can be implemented at relatively minor costs with the best environmental and health consequences. And, you know, it's a, it's been a step process. So I think they're all important. I don't know if there's any one thing that is more important than another, but I think in combination, all of these things under the authority in the act that the agencies put together were all very important to the environment and to public health. 
So you talked about the, you know, because I asked about how how fuels programs, how you see fuels programs evolving, and you said you could see um, sort of a a simplification of the regulatory regime, which I personally think is is um, way, 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 <laughs> way overdue. You know, what could something like that look like? Um, any 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 thoughts? You know about that. You know, when we say simplification. Anything that you have in mind there? Well, the agency is undergoing some regulatory review and streamlining efforts on this particular front. And uh, I believe there is something in the reg agenda on this. They've been working with industry partners to figure out where there's redundancy in the regulations, uh, see what's important in terms of still having data, compliance data submitted so that they can monitor and continue to enforce the programs, uh, but reduce the not only the number of reporting requirements, but the frequency of reporting requirements. And that's a very basic approach that the agency is looking at now. I think long term, if you would ask people that are both in industry and in government, I think the consolidation and understanding of what we have right now uh, on the books, uh, where there is you know, any effort to be able to just turn it into more of a national program as opposed to having separate low sulfur gasoline, low sulfur diesel programs, MSAT, RFG, conventional fuels, you know, you put it all together and really most gasoline out there, what it comes down to is there's a little bit of summer difference in summer controls in the northern and southern regions. And that's probably the reality of where we are right now. Everything else is is already low sulfur. Um, mm-hmm. Volatility controls are in place because of, of the seasonal requirements. Uh, they may not be as stringent as you would get with the RFG, RFG program. However, RFG and conventional fuels look a lot alike now. So there might be the opportunity to be able to, to come up with a, a consolidated approach, uh, reassess the benefits of and the costs associated with the controls that are currently out there are giving you have a lot of new vehicle controls that are already doing a lot of extra work as well. So I think I really, a, a whole, you know, assessment of where we are with vehicles and fuels and what the needs are and, you know, how that looks going forward to put into place a national program. And there may be still se- seasonal things that need to be addressed, but for the most part, uh, fuel looks a lot alike out there, no matter where you are. So I want to turn to big programs. It's like, oh, you left, you retired just in the nick of time. <laughs> there's a lot swirling around. Your timing is impeccable, sir. You know, there's a lot swirling around out there, of course, on uh, fuel economy and this uh, purported, because, you know, we haven't seen an actual uh, regulation yet, purported rollback um, or freeze, let's say, of um, the, the current uh, fuel economy standards through 2026. And of course, there's a lot that always seems to be swirling around um, on the RFS. So my question to you, which for, for the international listeners, I have to be careful with my, my uh, acronyms, is the Renewable Fuel Standard Program. So what do you think should happen to these two uh, programs from your perspective? Okay, that's great, and I'm glad you asked from my perspective. (laughs) Uh, Well, first off, on the fuel economy, I know that um, that is front and center right now, and there's a lot of dialogue going on, and the agency is revisiting the future fuel economy standards. And I think it's not a bad idea to do that, uh, to understand where the market is, what the needs are. However, that being said, the agency did do a lot of work, and I think the work that they did do does support the fact that you can achieve, you can have these higher mileage and greenhouse gas goals and achieve them with technology, both current technology and the very likelihood of implementing uh, some new technologies in the future. So I don't think that they're unattainable. However, that being said, you do need to look at the market and consider what the market trends are. If you are forcing an industry to go in directions which may be very expensive, uh, may not be what the consumers want. and Consumers ultimately drive what the demand for the types of vehicles their use is in the market. So I don't think revisiting them is a bad thing. 
whether or not the agency and California can ultimately come to some agreements on what those things are, because there's obviously that twist is California and the low carbon fuel program out there, the the California standards and the other states that have adopted those. So that is definitely a complication that is going to be very tricky. But uh, you look at the market, Ford is getting rid of its car, pretty much all of its car fleet. A lot of the Europeans are going to electrification and at least have claimed they're solely going to electrify their fleet. It's a, it's a, out there. Uh, if you look at Chrysler, and I mean, they really sell a lot of hot rods, if you will. And uh, of course, they've got the Jeep market, they have the, the Ram pickup market. While they're sell- still selling a fair amount of cars, I'm not sure those are the type of cars that are going to be able to necessarily attain those standards. And I'm not sure how that fits into, from a corporate perspective, attaining the CAFE standards as well as the greenhouse gas standards. So I guess my personal view is revisiting this is not a bad idea, but it doesn't mean that you should wholesale gut the program just for the sake of of gutting the program. I, I think it really does need to look at what the market is doing, how to assess the market demand, and make sure that the vehicles that are produced out there are meeting the the goals and the needs of the consumers. And hopefully those, I would expect, are still all going to end up being higher mileage and lower emitting vehicles anyway. On the RFS side, my background with the RFS uh, is long and deep at this point in time. I think it's a program that has worked. It certainly has created a great incentive for blending biofuels in the United States. And I think it's created uh, a development of an industry with interest in not only developing more conventional biofuels, but also potentially opening up international markets and maybe international markets for other products feedstocks, co-products, and ethanol and and biodiesel as well. I think it's done a lot in terms of incentivizing that. I also think that there has been a great interest in developing new technologies to um, produce even lower greenhouse gas emitting fuels for the future. That being said, there's still costs associated with those things. There's still technological hurdles. I think you'll see with the numbers that the agency has been putting in place, the the inability for cellulosic biofuels to attain those volumes, which were definitely very progressive at the time uh, that this Mm -hmm. was implemented. But I think the real challenge is there. The law is very, very difficult to interpret and to apply in a way which isn't problematic for the agency. And I know that creates problems with the agency in figuring out both how to interpret those things legally and then support those decisions technically while you have a market that is very, you know, ripe for wanting to produce more and more and more to expand their opportunities. That is a point which I think is where we are right now. And I know that there's other provisions. I'll just mention the reset provisions in the law. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is something that is probably going to be front and center very soon. And I see that being a very long, hard road to travel for everybody, not just the agency, but the uncertainty that that may create for the industries that are not only developed, but those that are on the cusp of hopefully wanting to develop. So I want to ask you, because I know you've worked a lot, um, not only have you worked a lot on the RFS program, but you've worked a lot on sort of the advanced biofuels or advanced alternative fuels um, area. So, you know, now we're kind of in a place where, you know, there was a valley of death (laughs) of which some companies, you know, never made it out, but some companies have and you know and some are actually doing quite well and some are delivering product to the market and substantial volumes you know I'm thinking about like Neste as 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 an example there wasn't even an XBTL you know you know like let's say you know 10 years ago they were just starting you know 12 years ago you know we didn't know anything about them at least in that particular area so you know and now you know they've they've got you know really significant market share globally and in the US as well so there are companies that are they're out there and they're doing it. So the questions I want to ask you is, given your your knowledge and your work in this area, and not only within EPA, but your intra-governmental work, you know, with USDA and DOE and others, what do you think government should be doing in general to encourage these fuels? And, you know, should we be, from a policy perspective, should we be moving away from an RFS type policy structure into something that is really more like, you know, a low carbon, like a national low carbon 
fuel standard that really would that better encourage from a policy perspective and give more certainty, you know, policy certainty for the emergence of these kinds of fuels? Yeah, that's a great question. It's another one which I'll probably walk a little bit, you know, to and from. Yeah, I guess the first thing is, is as I mentioned earlier, you know, simple sometimes works best. Simple doesn't necessarily work best for everybody because simple usually means that you're drawing some very distinct lines which don't necessarily allow for a diversity of, of people to be able to be involved. So that's one of the reasons why the RFS program has such a high level of interest from such diverse groups, not just the biofuels groups, but technology groups, investors, uh, the fuels market. Uh, it, it is it's, a, it's created opportunities for many, but it has also been the blame for squelching opportunities for other. And I don't think this program could have ever envisioned the difficulties within the context of what the law says and how to implement the law and truly still be able to allow the agency to be completely and 100% flexible. It's just not possible. And the way the law is written. And that gets in all the way from the, the land that it, things can be grow on, the evaluations, which is highly controversial and by many people in terms of the life cycle emissions. Yeah, I mean, the, the RIN market itself and uh, the opportunities that people have looked at there, even people who don't really want to produce a fuel, but are looking at trying to engage and figure out to way, ways to make money or save money on selling of their products and offering greater uh, greater choice into the market as well. So I think I think that is a, a very difficult thing to do when you look at the RFS program. And again, it, it's gone from being pretty easy to implement, even though it was complex, to being very, very difficult to implement and to interpret the laws and with a lot of court rulings and things um, that additionally puts further constraint on, on the agency's ability to to look at ways to be flexible, but at the same time, people are not happy necessarily because it's not flexible enough. And there's just no way you can implement programs that just completely allow for anything and everything to go. And I don't think people recognize that. So I I don't fault people for looking at the opportunities, but I think people also need to go in eyes wide open that uh, the law is, I will call it very constraining in some ways, even though in the appearance it allows flexibility. But when you get into how to take that flexibility and design regulations to effectively implement it and enforce it, that is really where the crux of the problem becomes. From my view, the RFS program is is complex. It's definitely done a lot of good work in incentivizing the biofuels industry, although it is still somewhat limited in, in the breadth of what I think Congress intended it to really incentivize. So question there goes, RFS program, a low-carbon fuel standard program. Well, to me, a low-carbon fuel program is also very complicated. It also still wrought with some of the same issues that the RFS program has. What is the market for those? What's the evaluation? You get into not just thresholds, but very distinct, specific point uh, reductions. And you have to do a lot of extensive evaluations on that. And then it allows for you know trading between programs. And uh, anyway, it's very complex. I'm not saying it's, it's uh, any better or any worse, but I think it's certainly... Congress should be looking at a way to attain the goals of the program, which certainly are energy security and uh, the appearance of greenhouse gas reductions as well, stated in there, and figure out a way which they could, again, move more towards a simple, more simplistic national program in consideration of the special interests that are out there that, you know, rightfully so, they're looking for new markets, they're looking to bolster uh, rural economy. They're looking to, at the same time, try and implement things that have environmental and energy security benefits. And it is a big challenge. There's a lot of work that's been tried to do, be done in, in the past, and there's still work going on that. But um, until such time as they can figure out a way forward, the best that I think you're going to have is, is to continue to to allow the agency to look at the law, implement the law, and at least, if nothing else, figure out a way to provide the foundation for the status quo and hopefully new directions for really incentivizing the the primary fuels, which are lower greenhouse gas fuels in the future. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the one of the most important things is that you know the you know we've been there's been a, an industry discussion about the need for RFS reform at the con- at the congressional level for I don't know I, seven eight years I mean almost as long as the program has been implemented there has been there has been discussion about the need for Congress to do something so that the agency you know internally is kind of looking at ways to sort of overall, you know, simplify fuel programs overall. But, you know, is there any kind of discussion about the same thing happening at the congressional level? I mean, I know there's a few folks that are kind of involved, but not much. And I don't think anything's going to happen in a in an election year. And, you know, it's just like this hand has been kicked down the road, you know, for years and years and years and years. So, you know, is there any interest on the Hill to do anything for real on this issue? Yeah, I think it is real. There's certainly some work going on. I know uh, the senator from Texas, uh, uh, along with a few others <laughs> that are in some of the key ag states, are looking at possible revisions, reform to the law. But again, it is it is a very, very difficult thing to do because understanding the consequences of change is challenging. And it's also problematic because some people say, well, we don't want to lose what we have now. And how can we make assurances that we're not only going to not lose what we have now, but we're going to still have opportunity going forward? And again, the diversity of the stakeholders involved in all of this, even within segments in the refining industry, they have different opinions. Uh, In the biofuel sector, they have different opinions. The scientific area is different opinions. So it, it is... The, the challenge will not stop, even if you have some common sense reform language that goes into place. I agree it's going to be very, very difficult to do. There are others out there that think that uh, the time is right right now. Getting back to the reset provisions, the reset is something and what the agency calls reset and set, which is really after you reduce the standards by 20% and two consecutive years or 50% in one one year, you're supposed to look at these 20 factors and make some evaluations based on no information in terms of how you, you grade or, or value those data points in making decisions to reset the standards going forward and then ultimately set new future standards after the year 2022 for this program. So I guess my biggest question is, does the market want the agency to be involved in making those decisions based on the legal authority they have, or would they rather Congress get to Congress and make their own decisions and get Congress to actually act on it uh, in a way that is more palatable for them? So I'm not sure where that's going to end up. It's certainly going to be an interesting year or two to, to come going forward, but uh, that is on the horizon. But I think for those senators involved, you know, those Midwest senators and Senator Cruz and others, I mean, they're only interested really in, you know, the RFS program, but no one that on the Hill, I mean, at least that I'm aware of, but that doesn't mean, you know, that, that discussions aren't happening. It's like, there's no national vision, you know, it's like, what's the national, what's our national vision? Just like you're talking about, you know, for you know, for fuels of the future, you know, what should they be like, you know, and then, you know, and then you sort of align the, you know, the R&D programs and things like that, you know, like, we really don't have anything like that, per se, we just have, you know, different, you know, fuel programs like the RFS that address different areas. Do you think there will be, it has, have you, observed or is there any appetite to have that larger discussion or is it mostly just focusing on the RFS at this time? Well, I think the focus certainly is on the RFS at this time because that's really what is front and center on the constituents' minds and that is what has made it front and center on the minds of the representatives, uh, both the congressional side as well as the Senate side. So I do believe that getting a national consensus is going to be improbable. But I do think that it is important. And I think, frankly, there's nobody better than the agency to speak to from a technical side to get input and guidance and advice on how to potentially get together for legislation that can address all of these factors, not only streamlining the existing fuel requirements that we have out there, but 
and codifying those in, in a more simplistic way, but also to address the consideration of future fuels. And the problem we are right now, the nexus for this is liquid transportation fuels, which I believe will be here for a long time. But there's a battle over what that liquid market is going to be. And the automakers, while they have these greenhouse gas standards and the CAFE standards that they are looking at, they don't have necessarily the certain. They know they're going to need liquid fuels. What are those liquid fuels going to be? Uh, They really have to rely on what they know the standards are on both fronts to come up with a mix that they can attain both the, the CAFE and GHG standards and what they're going to ultimately be able to use in terms of energy uh, to satisfy the needs for those vehicles in the market. So that's why I think we have not just hybrids, electrification that is really rampant right now and people moving in that direction. Where do you put your money? Where do you put your all of your investments? Who's going to be the winner in that market and the loser in that market if they guess wrong? That's a very, very yeah. challenging thing for the automakers, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, like 10 years ago or 15 years ago, there was all this discussion about uh, boutique fuels, you know, for uh, from the refining industry. And I don't think, uh, I mean, they may may see it differently. I mean, I don't see a boutique fuel issue per se as much as I, I see a boutique vehicle issue <laughs> coming. And, uh, you know, that's really major. So I've done some analysis recently showing that, um, you know, the car companies just over the next few years plan to spend global, by the way, global car companies plan to spend over $200 billion just on electrification. And that's a conservative number because, you know, there are companies like GM that don't release, you know, that kind of information. So, I mean, you know, th- those are huge, huge dollar amounts. And, you know, the years, the year focus here for that money is somewhere around 2025. It's kind of like the magic, you know, the magic number. But that brings me to a question that I wanted to ask you about um, the electric vehicle market. How do you see that evolving, you know, mostly here in the in the U.S. over the next 10 years? And when we talk electrification, I'm talking about, you know, hybrids, you know, plug-ins and, and battery electric vehicles. I'm sure you've seen the, uh, you know, it seems like you know, it's a new cottage industry to come out with a uh, forecast <laughs> for electrification, you know, penetration in the in the vehicle market. And I'm sure you've seen some of the more progressive ones that are out there. I mean, what? Do, how do you see it uh, evolving? Well, you know, the United States is a big country, and I think a lot of us tend to focus on thinking about cities, and I, that's not wrong. But um, electrification in terms of, you know, cities, I think, can certainly make a lot of sense. You've got a lot of places. Every place has electricity. I see the development of the infrastructure really, you know, growing leaps and bounds over the coming years. I think hybrids probably overall would definitely make the the best sense in terms of a transitional vehicle. Plug-in hybrids, battery electric uh, vehicles, all of those things I think are going to find, but they're still going to be niche markets. And I think it's going to be a question of costs, a question of utilization. But when I look at what I just saw last week, that I think it's for the first time ever that uh, light trucks are outselling cars in the country. I mean, they've always been up there, but they are now more than 50% of, I think, the new sales. That, Uh to me, is pretty telling. So the question is, are people buying trucks to actually use them for hauling things? And now I think most of it in the city areas, they're they're using them for hauling people around and definitely they're utilitarian. You see a lot of these much smaller light trucks coming in, which are really car-based type platforms that uh, people like to be up high. They like to feel that space. They like to, to have uh, hatchbacks. So I, I think a lot of which what Ford is doing is getting away from cars and selling things that they believe are the market that is to come. It's already here. And the market is telling them that. To me, the question then is, okay, well, maybe there is a big development going on and there's going to be more people that are going to find vehicles that fit that niche in in their desire for a vehicle within the city areas. But when you're talking about the rest of the country, I still see the the ease of liquid fuels. I still see the benefits of the internal combustion engines out there. And uh, I, I just don't see that going away anytime soon. 
So I don't think EVs are going to transition in, in a significant way over the next five or 10 years, but I think that they definitely are on the horizon. Uh, and I would say at some point in time, they are going to be a much more significant portion of the U.S. fleet, whether that is regulatorily driven or whether that, that is actually technology driven. I think that's what the automakers are planning for right now. Whether it's regulations, they can plan for it, or whether it is actually the market demand and ultimately the technology can keep up and, and satisfy that demand in the market, then I think that they'll, they'll move towards that as they are ready to. So that brings me back to the to the liquid fuels as a as a follow up and you know what you know automaker needs you know one of the things that come has come up time and time again over the years is the need for higher octane do you ultimately see that issue getting solved here in the next i don't know within the next few years or so or hard to say no. I think it's hard to say. I don't really think it's going to get solved. I mean, the agency has some constraints on what it can do in terms of setting octane standards. I mean, there are some requirements. There needs to be environmental benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I I won't get into those details, but there certainly could be a path forward for octane if the agency looks at setting greenhouse gas standards. uh, And that is an option that is desired by the automakers and then can be satisfied either by you know, renewable fuels or by higher octane components straight out of the refinery. And again, when you set a standard, the agency generally is fuel neutral, which means you can meet that standard in a lot of different ways, whether it ultimately economically requires that it's more ethanol or biobutanol or some other um, components out of the refinery streams that can satisfy that, then, you know, maybe at some point, um, there could be considered some octane standards driven regulatorily. But that being said, again, I think it's going to get down to uh, the old adage from the refining industry that if there's a demand for it, we certainly can supply it. And they can make those decisions on how to meet the, the requirements for the demand for the vehicles out there. But this is all about transition as it has been in the past. You know, it took 20 years to phase lead out of gasoline, and that was something that was being put into it. When you're talking That's about right. taking... Yeah, when you're talking about taking things out of gasoline, then there's transitional requirements. When you're talking about putting something in gasoline, does the infrastructure support it, which we've already had some of those claims and issues associated with uh, with moving to higher blends. Does the Do the vehicles actually, can they use it? Are they certified with it? What are the emissions consequences? What are the safety consequences? I mean, there's all of those things that the, the market and the dialogue has been around aren't going to go away. Uh, the real question is, is what is going to cause that transition? And I think it, it gets down to a combination of things. It's going to be consumer demand uh, and based on needs and desires. It's going to be somewhat regulatory in nature as well. And then I think certainly there will be, uh, there will very likely be some incentives that will need to be developed in terms of producing the technology and the adaptation in the market to transition to different, different energy. So you talked about cit- about cities. You sort of referenced cities when we when you were talking about you know how you see electrification, you know, evolving in the U.S. So what do you think of those cities and then the several countries that are banning or intend to ban the internal combustion engine vehicle? I mean, you know, I mean it's certainly <laughs> it's certainly an emission control strategy. So I mean, I think the issue here is. That, you know, VMT is increasing, you know, the car fleet globally is, you know, it, it's it going to double over the next 20 years or so. And I think countries are really and cities are really grappling with, you know, how to how to deal with that. So what do you think of these car bans and what do you think countries should be doing to from a policy perspective to get a better handle on, you know, congestion, air quality, you know, and even greenhouse gas emissions? Well, that's a great question. Um, I, I guess I'll just start out by saying I'm not a big supporter of banning, you know, vehicles with internal combustion engines because you can have vehicles that are very, very clean. I mean, for instance, if that's the case, you'd, you'd have to really be specific at what it is. Is that a vehicle like a Chevy Volt, which has a an engine which produces electricity? Is that a, a hybrid vehicle which has an internal combustion engine but is also powered by battery, um, you know, over the course of X number of, of miles, it can go without charge, et cetera. So, I mean, that gets into kind of specifics of things, but simply banning something I don't think is necessarily a great idea. And as 
you know, history has proven you can have public transportation, you can have other constraints and requirements on things, but the market ultimately wants things and will require things in order to be able to operate efficiently and effectively. Building roads, while that helps reduce congestion, it also allows for greater congestion to come in and, and, you know, people, the populace is increasing. I think it's going to be a combination of a lot of different things. It it could be that there, I know some areas are saying, well, you have to park your car outside the city five miles and everything else is public transportation or, or you take, um, you know, other ride sharing and things like that into cities. There's been a lot of cities have talked about that. You are creating inconveniences for consumers. And this is my own personal view, but I mean, I've commuted into the Washington, D.C. area for you know, <laughs> over 30 years combined, and mm. it definitely has gotten worse. Um, the public transportation system around here, while I think some would consider it to be pretty good, has had its problems and challenges. I personally can't take the public transportation system because I get nausea and things on the metro and strobing, mm-hmm. the shaking, the underground, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a physical condition. But putting that aside... It t- takes me longer, even with congestion here, to take public transportation into the city than it does for me to drive in the traffic. And believe me, I didn't like the traffic. It's one of the main reasons I was really happy to retire, um, <laughs> to get out of commuting. But, uh, but it, doesn't, it doesn't stop people's desires. And they have other things that are going on that need to be somewhere else after work and public transportation can't get you there. I think it needs right. a wholesale evaluation of what's important to people, um, how to how work can be done differently. There's certainly a lot more people working at home nowadays, uh, satellite offices, there's a lot of things. So while we are all intrinsically trying to get people back into cities in some ways, a lot of these types of things, I think, can have unintended consequences of forcing people that want the options and the flexibility, um, they may actually be forced to move out of a city because that limits their their rights in order uh, in their way of operating um, based on their needs and desires. So I think it just needs to, to be looked at um, more, more specifically and with greater understanding of what consumer habits are, what personal interests are, what the, what the reality of uh, the workforce needs and, and how work can be done differently. So uh, I'm not, I certainly am in favor of public transportation. I'm in, I took the Mark train in, which is the above ground line. I took that for five years and absolutely loved it. It was one uh-huh. mile away from my house. Um, I could park for free. I could take the train in. And while there was limited you know, times of the train going in and out, it's all things that you could work around and setting your schedule. And I absolutely enjoyed it. And it was a very social thing. So I think it gets down to what people can do to adjust their lifestyles and their interests in a way that satisfies their, you know, their needs. You know, I think what you're saying is really, really important. And I just talked to Tom Boge, who is a policy analyst at the International Transport Forum. And that's one of the big points that he made during that interview, which is, you know, but the interview was really more about his area of expertise, which is shared mobility, you know, autonomous, you know, autonomous technologies, things like that. But one of the points that he made was, you know, we really need to be interacting with citizens and consumers. I mean, we need to find out from them, how do they live? How do they work? How do they want to travel? We need to introduce them to, you know, and educate them about, you know, the things that are happening out there, you know, in the marketplace, you know, put out an autonomous vehicle or, you know, give them a, give them a chance to check out some of these new technologies and see if, you know, it works for them when you're designing some of these, these programs to actually get, um, you know, input from people. Now, the regulatory process here is really designed, you know, around that, which is why you get 5 million postcards, you know, from people for each RFS, RVO, you know, rulemaking. But I think that that's a really important point because I think there's some awareness out there on on behalf of regular consumers about things like, you know, electrification and things like that. But, you know, John Eichberger at the Fuels Institute just wrote this really interesting column about Octane. You know, how many people know about Octane? There's people in this business who, who don't know a thing about Octane, which I thought was really, really interesting. So it, it seems like a lot more 
consumer engagement or and education is required that, you know, the car companies or even the fuel providers, even the biofuel providers probably need to be doing. But the second point that you made that I think is interesting is I think one of the biggest issues that we have in terms of mobility and transport and fuels and vehicles have nothing to do with <laughs> any of that, which is, you know, the real issue is that housing, cities are growing. Housing is becoming more and more expensive globally, not just here in the U.S., which pushes people further out, further out, further out, further out, so that they can have some kind of affordable living. Um, And of course, there's other factors involved in there as well, school systems and things like that. But that means that people are out of reach of public transport um, in many cases, you know, and they're in their cars driving. So there's another sort of fundamental problem. You know, if you want to fix, you know, vehicles, uh, you know, congestion related issues and, you know, then, you know, air quality and greenhouse gas issues, you don't want people to be driving so much. You really have to fix that issue. And that is totally beyond our, (laughs) you know, it's definitely beyond my scope and might be beyond yours as well. But I think that's one of the big issues of um, our time. And there's not really that much happening there from a, you know, what do you do about that? That's a big issue. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And where are a lot of the jobs that are in the cities? And a lot of the jobs that are in the cities are not necessarily high-paying jobs. They're, they're support um, jobs where, you know, people are in restaurants and, you know, that's, that's what people, people have opportunities there that are in the cities on a lot of different fronts. Um, so they, they need to get there. And if they can't afford to live there, then they have to move out somewhere where they can't afford to live. And that increases their time, their quality of life, their, potentially their costs. And maybe even their flexibility to to be able to to do a lot of other things. So you know, again, that's why I think things need to be looked at holistically. And there's there's no one grand scheme effort to be able to come up with at this point in time to fix all of these things. But there certainly are greater opportunities to understand this. And I don't think you know what appears to be a, a great idea of banning internal combustion engines necessarily. What what would that do to consumers that have to drive? Well, that means they got to live further out. They got to drive someplace where they need to take public transportation in. And uh, what about those people that can't? Or yeah, it's no exactly. longer affordable. Yeah. Exactly. So, last question before we we close this discussion: What do you think, based on your your experience, what do you think other countries can learn from uh, the U.S. And, uh, and from EPA and its approach to, to reducing, you know, transport-related air pollution and greenhouse gases. And, you know, and are there, there are pitfalls that, you know, other countries, they can learn from EPA's experiences or the U.S. experience in general and kind of avoid? What's your perspective on that? Well, as you and I both know, because we did do international work, and I'm probably going to continue did. to do a little bit of that. That is a very, very challenging thing. I mean, there's a lot that can be learned, and I think people are learning, and I think you can hopscotch over some of the, I'll call lessons, not necessarily mistakes, but lessons that the U.S. and Europe and and other uh, developed countries know about implementing these types of programs. But that being said, some of these other countries, you know, producing a vehicle that costs $3,000 less than a vehicle in this country because it doesn't require all these regulatory requirements, that may make it that their quality of life is immediately enhanced, but they're not going to have the health and environmental benefits associated with with all of the things that we've learned in the adaptation of new technologies um, onto vehicles. And the same with fuels. Refining companies, while the U.S. and others may be able to produce excess fuels and send them that are cleaner, uh, is that a more cost-effective way for things to be done? Or are there industries within those countries which the refineries are simple, uh, they don't have the technology or the ability to uh, to get financing to develop those things, there's transition. I mean, infrastructure, everything, again, needs to be looked at holistically. And I think if you are at a place where none of you're really, really just developing, I think you can hopscotch or leapfrog and apply some of those lessons into into developing both, you know, new laws and applications of technologies, uh, cleaner technologies into those markets more immediately than the transitions that we've had to have. But again, it comes down to their economy, uh, the consumer's ability to to purchase 
uh, to be able to afford some of these things, the ability of, of that country or the region's uh, interest to be able to, to apply those things in those areas. So it, it is, uh, I think the, the, the middle point there is we have the technology to the extent that it could be made um, more affordable and actually produced in those countries in a way which comports with their the economy of that nation and the consumers in that nation, I think it can be done. And I think there, there are benefits no matter what, even if they can't take it all the way to where we are today, there certainly are benefits, even in applying uh, less technology and uh, fuels which maybe not be quite as clean as they might be in some of the developed world into those markets. There's still benefits in doing that. So super last question. Now that you're retired, what are you up to? <laughs> well, <laughs> what I, do you want I, to be up to? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I consider myself to be pretty blessed. Um, I had the opportunity to retire. I miss all of my my friends and colleagues at work. And, and I actually... It's exciting, all the things that I did work on. Uh, certainly, there's always frustration with certain things, but I actually intended to take some time off and kind of evaluate whether we're going to stay in the area, whether we're going to move, and there's a lot of factors I need to consider in that, but I've been fortunate enough. I've had some people that I have known for decades that have approached me and are interested in having me engage with them in, in some work efforts. Uh, I have therefore started my own little business. Uh, it's called Policy Nexus Advisors. It's a little LLC. It's just me, so sole proprietor. And I have accepted a, a few opportunities with a few of these people to to work at least part-time with them on some of these issues, more in the terms of policy and guidance than, than really anything else. So that's what I'm going to be doing right now, but I'm also going to be enjoying retirement. I'm definitely not going to be working all day or every day or maybe not even any day during some weeks. <laughs> That sounds great. You're kind of living the dream. So, all right. Uh, we'll end it there. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Paul so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you and talk with you about uh, your views on uh, your kind of the retrospective, I guess, on fuels and vehicles. And uh, and thank you for sharing your views about how you kind of see the the future shaping up. Thank you for having me, Tammy. <laughs> so please do us a favor before you go. Head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking and keeping the show visible so that other people can discover it and hopefully also benefit from it. Thanks ahead of time for helping us out. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on fuels and vehicles issues, sign up for my newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. That's the show. 